0: And I think you're going to see something in here that maybe you haven't seen before. So we're going to start in verse 25, where we read, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this man who's, a, who's an expert in the law, this is somebody who had not just studied the Bible and probably memorized what we call the Old Testament, but that he studied it and would teach it to others. He's an expert. This guy is seminary trained. He's got his theological degree. He's ordained, probably. This guy knows his stuff. People go to him to ask him questions. So here he comes to challenge Jesus about a point of the law because this man wants to be extra religious. He wants to make sure that he is radical in his faith for God. And he says, well, what do I have to do, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? And the guy brings up these, these two commands and what Jesus will later call as the greatest command. And the second greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself will say, hey, all of the law and the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, everything that God has said up till this point can be summarized by those two commandments. Love God, love others. I mean, you look at every one of the Ten Commandments, you look at every one of the other 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament, you could summarize them by those two things. If you love God and you are dedicated to him, faithful to him, and if you love others, every other law fits under those two. So what Jesus says, hey, you got it. You got it, man. Gold star. You know what it means to be religious now, right? You have figured out how to summarize all of the Bible, everything that God has said. Love God. Love others. Love others. And Jesus says, do those things and you'll live. But in verse 29, it says the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? See, the first commandment's pretty clear. I mean, love God, the one true God, the one creator of all the universe. Okay, that's simple. I know to love that God. But what he's saying is, well, who's my neighbor? If, if that really summarizes the Old Testament law about love your neighbor, I want to know who my neighbor is. Because if I know who my neighbor is, I can make sure I love them. Because there's some people that I don't quite like very much. Anybody been there? Know some people that you don't quite like, love, don't get along with? Maybe just, I don't want anything to do with that group of people. Maybe the political spectrum. Maybe a, a certain politician and people who like them. I don't say which politician, right? Okay, we're all thinking those things in my mind. There's some people we don't like. So what this man wants to know is where are the boundary lines? Because if I know the boundary lines, I can make sure that I check off the box. This religious box that we sometimes do. I've gone to church. I've said my prayers. I've tithed my money. My kids in youth group. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good box, right? and And I've loved my neighbor I've checked off that box I'm good to go because I have helped that neighbor and it's interesting because Luke uses that word and and He wanted to justify himself. Now, Luke is the historian who's who's trained as a doctor, but he's just a brilliant man. He wrote this history. We've called this whole time, as we've looked at the Gospel of Luke, the investigating Jesus, because that's what Luke did. He went and investigated. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He went to the scenes of where all these things happened with Jesus, and he wrote down his account in the book of Luke. He wrote an account of what happened with the early church in the book of Acts. He's writing all these things, but he throws in this little explanation of what this man is doing. That he wanted to justify himself. That word "justify" um, is something we still use today because we we use it to justify our actions, right? Because we want to say I'm I'm fine, I'm okay, I've done what I'm supposed to do. In the legal system of that day, you know, in our day, you can be declared guilty or not guilty, right? Those are the verdicts in our court system: guilty or not guilty. But in the this court system of Jesus' day, you could be declared innocent. You could be declared right. You're de- you've done what's right. It's not just that you're not guilty in our in our society. You can never be said that you did not commit the crime. You're just not guilty of it. Right. But in that day and DNA, you could be declared righteous. You could be declared right. And that's what the word justify means. So this man is saying, I want to look at my life and I want other people to look at my life. I especially want God to look at my life and say that I am right. I have done what's right. I'm righteous. I'm a good person. I've checked the boxes boxes. I'm great. That's what this man wants, and that's why he's asking these questions, because he wants to know, hey, I've checked off the box. I've done my religious duty. And this is a very religious man, remember? And that's when Jesus tells a story, perhaps the most famous story he ever told, the parable of the good Samaritan. Because Jesus just jumps into this story, and he says, there was a man going down on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, And while he was walking along this road, some robbers came along. They grabbed him. They ripped off his clothes. They beat him. They stole everything he had, all his money, his clothes. They took him and they left him there, half dead, on the side of the road. And after this man has been assaulted and left for dead, seemingly unconscious, as the story tells, he's there and there's no one to help him. But then Jesus said uh, there was a man that came along coming down the road. And this first man was a priest. He was a priest. Once again, seminary trained. This guy is working. Since he's coming from Jerusalem, he was working in the temple. This guy is serving God. He's the guy up front teaching, right? (laughs) He's the pastor of the church, of the local synagogue. And he comes along and he sees this man in need. And he walks to the other side of the road and does nothing to help him. Jesus says, well, then there was a second man, and the second man was a Levite, a Levite. And people in the tribe of Levi were assigned duties to work in the temple. So they may not have been the priests offering the sacrifices and working with the people to counsel them, but they would have been the, the temple workers. They are the people that are on staff at the church, right? These are ministry workers. They're administrators. They're probably helping with the music. We love those people in our church, right? And here's this Levite as he walks by and he walks to the other side of the road. He sees this naked man lying there, beat up, unconscious on the road, and he walks to the other side of the road and continues on. But then Jesus said, of course, there's a third man. Stories always come in threes, right? There's the third man that comes, a Samaritan. He's a Samaritan, and a Samaritan, we're we're kind of the... um, the rejects of God's people. They were the people who had abandoned God. They had decided that they weren't going to worship in the temple. They were going to worship on another mountain. So religiously they were way off. They were the outcasts of society. A lot of people would not go through Samaria even though it was the closer routes. Um, so they would walk around all of Samaria because they were like the ugly stepkids. I mean, we want nothing to do with them. Okay? They have distorted God's law. They think they're right with God, but they're not. Jews did not eat with Samaritans. But this Samaritan walks by and sees this man on the side of the road, naked, helpless. And it says that he bandaged him up. He puts some oil on him, some medicine at the time, and he soothes this guy's wounds. He wraps him up and he puts him uh, and, and takes him to the nearest village where he finds an inn and he drops off this man. And he pays Pays for the night for this man to stay. And he tells the innkeeper, hey, here's some money so that I could take care of this man. And I'll pay more if it's needed when I come back. Look after him. This Samaritan had helped this man lying there on the side of the road. And at the end of the story, in verse 36, Jesus says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. This man had mercy, had compassion for this man on the side of the road, and he did not just leave him, though it would be an inconvenience, though it would be costly, though it would take tangible effort, not just to say, I'll pray for you and move on, right? This is effort, this is going out of the way to help a man, to bandage up wounds. Uh, okay, this would have made him ceremonially un." pure and he would have had to go through all sorts of rituals afterwards in order to make himself right in the eyes of the temple and the religious people of the day. But he was willing to do that, willing to sacrifice to help a person in need. And as this expert in the law, this religious man can see very clearly, yes, it's that man. And did you notice he doesn't even say the Samaritan? He still can't even bring that word to his lips because that's how much they despise these Samaritans. But even he can see, yes, clearly in the story, the man who had compassion in his heart, who's willing to tangibly help another person in need, even though it is costly. That is what a neighbor is. That is how to love like a neighbor. It's pretty clear. You know, a lot of people look at this story and they do focus on that Samaritan. And I think we're going to need to. A lot of people look at that and say, hey, this means that people of other ethnicities, the the people of other Political ideologies, people from other nations, people who are immigrants, no matter their documentation status, we need to love those people. It doesn't matter if they are our neighbors, we must love them. That's good, right? That'll preach, right? We did a whole series this summer in the month of July, no ordinary people because there are no ordinary people. Every person, every human being is made in, in the image of God and deserves dignity and respect because we are all eternal so we talked about people will either spend eternity with God forever in heaven or eternity in hell apart from him. And hell is hot and forever is a very long time. That's why we want to do everything to, we can to help people who look different than us, who speak a different language. We love those people. And I I think that's an application here, but I don't think that's the biggest application that Jesus is making in this parable. I think it's really fascinating What Jesus uses the Samaritan, because he's not saying that we, as God's people, need to help the Samaritan. No, the Samaritan is the great example. (laughs) He's the hero of the story, right? Do you guys pick up on that? It's not, okay, now go help and love the Samaritans. No, the Samaritans are doing what they're supposed to do. That's what Jesus is saying. So I think that is the key to the story. Whenever you see something like that that's odd in the Bible, it's probably the key to understanding everything. And Jesus would throw in these things that are extremely odd in his parables that he made up. He's making up this story. It's so that you'll notice it. And I think I, I think what Jesus is doing here is a pattern. You know, we tell the jokes, you know, there's the three guys and it's always the third guy who who does you right. We always, there's always threes in stories, right? Threes and stories, threes and jokes. So the third is the most important. And what's really interesting is that if you study the Old Testament, particularly the books of Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, what you'll see um, some 17 times, I counted, some 17 times is there's a trio that occurs in those books of the Bible. And those were some of the oldest, I'm sorry, the latest books written in the Old Testament. So they would have been the freshest for Jesus. And 17 times in those books, it talks about the priests, the Levites, and the people of God. 17 times that trio appears. The priests, the Levites, and the people of God. The priests, the Levites, and the people of God. These are the Jews, the people in Judea. They are the people of God. So there's, there's the priests, the Levites, and the people of God. There's the priests who are, of course, you know, the, they, they got their, their robes on. Maybe they got their collar. You can picture the priests. Then there's the people who are the, the very religious people serving in the church. I mean, these guys are great. And then there's the people of God, the lay people who are showing up on Sundays. Yeah, they're volunteering and they're serving. They love their God. So that trio occurs again and again and again. But that's not the trio that Jesus uses, is it? He so said there's the priest, the Levi, and the Samaritan. Okay, this is clear that Jesus is trying to draw a distinction. They would have expected that, like any joke. Okay, the priest, the Levi, and the, what, Samaritan? What's going on? So this contrast is really, really important. I think another thing that's really important in this story is the geography. <laughs> we all know Middle Eastern geography, Right? Uh, One of the the fun things to do, there's a website I go to called Bible Geocoding. And you can look on a modern map and see where the different points are in every chapter of the Bible. And if you look at it on a map, I have this. um, Actually, I don't know if I have it on the screen for you guys. But if you look at a map and you see Jerusalem, well, just to the north and east is Jericho, 10 to 15 miles to the northeast. So Jerusalem is the capital city with the temple. Jericho is the small town you may remember from the Old Testament, walking around it, blowing some trumpets, boom, walls fall down, right? Do it again. Bobby got that one. But it says what's really interesting, because it says to the northeast, but when it talks about the man, it says he's going down from Jerusalem. And it says for the priest in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down. And in verse 32, it says, so too, likewise, it says all these guys are going down. Now, we look at it as a map, and we think north-south, because we, we have the compass, we got a map, we got, you know, our phones that tell us which directions. We're in Colorado, so we know which way's west, right? right? <laughs> yeah. So when we look at this, we think going down, well, then why does it say he's going down to Jericho, if Jericho's to the north and east? But what we don't realize is the geography, the topography, actually, because Jerusalem was a city on a hill. And Jericho was very near the river basin. And in fact, that river basin is one of the lowest places on earth near the Dead Sea. So what would have happened as you walk from those 10 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho is that you're traveling down some 3,000, some 3,500 feet, right? So you're going down. That's what it's saying. I'm pointing this out because these priests, these Levites, are leaving the temple in Jerusalem to go back to their hometown in Jericho or or maybe wherever else it is across the river. I think that's important because so many people have missed this in this story. I don't know if you've heard about this study. Back in 1973, there was a study at Princeton. Some psychologists wanted to test what it takes to help people and who helps other people. Have you guys heard of this study? It's the very famous Good Samaritan study. If you've taken Psych 101, you would have heard about this. Because what they did was they knew Princeton Theological Seminary, one of the, the oldest and you know, most famous seminaries in our entire country is there on the campus of Princeton. So these psych students, they, they brought these, these um, seminary students and they said, hey, since you guys are training to be the priests, the pastors, the religious leaders, we want to see if you actually are Good Samaritans. So what we want you to do, they didn't say this, right? But we want you to prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Once want you to prepare it and you're going to give it to a group of people. This is for a study we're doing. So they show up at the place and then they say, hey, you've got to go across campus to this other building where you're going to preach that message. They had them fill out a questionnaire, but nothing in the questionnaire they found had any um, bearing on whether uh, the, these priests or future priests and pastors would, would help another person. But what they did is on the way from one building to the next... They didn't tell him what was going on. There was a man in the alleyway, and it was a four-foot alleyway. There was a man that would kind of dressed up like he had been beaten up and was wounded, and he was moaning there in the alley, and they would see whether these people on their way to preach on the Good Samaritan would stop to help the person on the side of the road, right? Interesting study. Anybody heard of this study? It's really fascinating because that's what they did, and, and what they found, nothing about their, their questionnaire or their background changed anything whether these future priests would help the person on the side of the road. What they found was the time did. Okay, this is an interesting study. I, I think it's really impactful. What they found was the first group of people, they said, Hey, um, take as much time as you want. You got a, a while. You got a while to get to where you're going to preach. Take your time. Get over there. And then the second group of people, they said, Hey, you're right on time. Make sure you get over there and you're going to preach. And then the third group, they said, You're late. You better rush over there as quick as you can because you've got to preach. Now, it was that time that was the only difference whether these people would stop and help the person on the side of the road. What do you think happened? Well, the people that had all sorts of time, 65% of them, about 63%, stopped to help this person on the side of the road. Now, the second group that was said, hey, you're right on time, 45%. So about one out of two actually helped this person on the side of the road. But the biggest takeaway from this study was that only 10% of the people who were in a rush stopped to help the person on the side of the road when they went to go preach on helping the person on the side of the road, right? Interesting, right? So I think that's great. We can learn so much from that that, hey, there's been books written on this. Hey, you've got to be interruptible, the interruptible life. You've got to make sure you have margin in your life. Man, this is great application too. make sure that when you plan your schedule, you have 10 to 20 percent of your time available in case things like this happen so that you have time to stop and say, I'm helping this person, that your priorities are straight and everything. These are great applications and I preach it. But what's fascinating about that study, and I think so many other people, is that most people assume that the priests and the Levite are going on their way to do their religious duty in the temple. But I just told you the geography. It's the exact opposite. Did you notice that? These priests would have just been working in the temple. The Levites would have been working in the temple. They just did their duty. In fact, for a priest that would have been from outside of Jerusalem, they would have only worked in the temple, some of them, once in their entire life. This is a huge deal. This is the big show. They're going up there to preach before thousands of people. They're big deals now. They've been working in the temple today. They have checked off their religious box because they are the most religious people in the land. Look at them, how they faithfully they have served in the temple and done their religious duty. And now they're on their way home. Yeah, maybe they're in a rush. Yeah, maybe they're trying to get somewhere. But in reality, I think what Jesus is saying is these guys, the priests... The Levite has checked off their box. They went to church on Sunday. They tied their money. They served on a serve team. They went overseas and did a mission trip. They don't need to help anybody else. I've already done what I needed to do. I've checked off my religious box. What Jesus is trying to teach us here is that this third person, this, this despised Samaritan is actually the only one who's done what he's supposed to do to love his neighbor. He's the only one who's an example, the hero of the story. Because he's the religious outcast, and yet he knows that he needs to love the person in need, to have compassion, a heart of compassion to see this person say, I'm going to help you, even though it will cost me so much. See, what Jesus is teaching us here is the heart of what it means to truly be a radical Christian. A radical Christian is not someone who's going to uh, to fight and, and oppose anybody who doesn't believe in them and, and is always out there fighting for their religious liberty and fighting anybody who opposes the faith and, and saying awful things about them. It's not that. It, being a religious Christian uh, and, and a radical Christian is not being the most religious person. It's not the person that has all the right clothes and all the right uh, accessories and is praying all the time and, and tithing. Those, those things are all great. Please keep tithing. Um, but what Jesus is saying... What Jesus is saying is that a radical Christian shows radical love. Radical Christianity is radical love. That's what it's about. That's at its core. It's love. He will later say, "They will know you are Christians by your They'll know you are Christians by your by your love." That's what sets you apart. It's not the clothes you wear, the necklaces you have, the tattoo that's neatly put, the, that Hebrew, man, that looks good. Okay, It's not any of that. What sets you apart as a follower of Jesus is how you love people. That is at the heart of radical Christianity. And it's the same reason. It's the same reason why Jesus would come down and stop to help people on the side of the road. That woman at the well... But nobody would go near her because she was the adulterous woman, right? She was the one who had five husbands and was sleeping with another guy. And yet Jesus goes to talk with her and love her. That's why Jesus would go to Peter and wash his feet and wash the feet of his disciples because he cared about him. He even went to the cross. And he went knowing he would die and gave everything. Paid the greatest price on the cross. Shedding his own blood and dying for us. Because love is costly and Jesus says, I am love. Jesus showed us his example, and by dying on the cross, we can put our faith in him, have our sins forgiven, and we too can follow in his path of love in this world. Radical Christianity is radical love. That's at the heart of what it means to be. That's at the heart of radical Christianity. So I want to challenge you guys, because at the very end of this passage in verse 37 when the expert of the law replied the one who had mercy on him jesus told him what go and do likewise go live it out it's your actions it's a heart that's been changed by the love of god in your in you that will go out to love others to serve them the people who are needy to tangibly doing something not just say i'll pray for you and, and good luck to do something to serve them even if it's costly Because that's what the good Samaritan did, and that's what Jesus did for us on the cross, and what we must do likewise. So I want you to think of that person. I want you to think of just one person. This Samaritan just helped one guy. Did you notice that? He didn't give all his money away, travel across the seas to to serve in an orphanage, so that's awesome. He helped one person in need. So I want to challenge you to think about one person in need And if you don't have someone on the top of your mind right now that that is hurting, that is desperate, that is needy, that that maybe is financially struggling, if you don't have that person in mind, I, I am asking you to think and pray about it all week. Because God is asking you to go and do likewise today. If you want to follow Jesus, you must also follow him to love others. And that's what I'm going to send you out to do. So as we have the band come up, again, we're going to do one more song. I want you to be thinking of that one person. Who's that one person? Who has God put in your road? Is it someone that you can buy a meal for? Is it someone that you can sit with and go with them to their cancer treatments? Is it someone who's desperate and hurting and, and you can show up with some flowers at their house? Somebody in our church, Casey Lamb, did that for Melissa and I a few weeks ago. And it was awesome that she just showed up with flowers. I love it. I love that our church has some teenagers in our church that we've really adopted into our church family. So here's going to be taking a niche up to CSU uh, tomorrow. Because that's what we do. We see the one person. Can I help the one person? Sometimes we, we see all the needs around us and they're like, there's no way I can help all those people, so I'm not going to help anyone. Okay? No, no, no. Just help the one. Start there. And though it may be costly, though it will be inconveniencing you, though it may put back your schedule, I want you to know that radical Christianity is radical love. Let's pray. Lord God, um, I just pray right now that this this word that you have for us today, maybe this story that we've heard a thousand times, would speak to our souls. That uh, That we would realize how much you love us. That you sent your own son to die for us on the cross to forgive us of our sins so that we can go out in love. And I pray that that love would transform us. Maybe there are some men and women, children here today, for the first time they want to put their faith in you. And I pray that you speak to their soul that they would be able to do that and say, I want that. I want to be a radical Christian. And I pray for all of us as we go out from here that we would start with that one and build from there to add and add and multiply. Because you have called us to radical Christianity. You have called us to radical love. Amen.